If you've got your Bibles, please keep it open at Matthew 14. Um, you want to be thinking about the words that are there. I think this is a great little passage, and um, I hope the Lord will uh, use it to instruct our hearts and strengthen our minds. So let me pray, and then we'll, um, we'll think about it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, all of us who are able to be here this morning. We're very mindful that not all of us are here. There's a number of people labouring under bad health. We do pray that you might strengthen them and sustain them and bring healing to them. Uh, but for those of us who are here, Lord, as we spend a few moments now in your word, please minister to us by your spirit. Uh, strengthen us. Encourage us. Uh, for those of us who are fearful, we pray that we might... Uh, have a confidence in you that allows us to get past those fears. For those of us who don't fear what we should, give us wisdom. Uh, we just pray, Lord, that uh, you would work amongst us this morning by your spirit. And ultimately, you'd draw us closer to yourself and make us more like your son, our precious king. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like us to think uh, for a few moments then about fear. And uh, I think as human beings, we've got a, a strange relationship with fear. Mostly we see it negatively, fear. I think that's right. Would you agree? Most of us see it uh, overwhelmingly, fear as negative. We, um, we blame fear for lives not lived to potential. If only they hadn't had fear, they would have flourished more. We see fear used as a weapon sometimes to control people or subdue people. You see this in the news all the time, don't you? You keep people scared, you keep people dependent on you. Uh, fear is seen as something negative in that way, something that we want to avoid, to escape or rise above. But there is another sense to fear. There is a more positive sense of fear. I'm told that there are some people who like watching scary movies because they like the sensation of fear. That's not me, but is that anyone here? No, that's good. No weirdos in this room. That's good. It is, it is slightly odd, that. Um, but there is, a, there is a more positive sense to fear, too. Our wife, my wife and I have raised three children, and um, two of them are still at home, but they're, they're, they're adults now, really. Um, uh, we wanted our children to have a healthy fear. We didn't want them to have no fear. We wanted them to have a healthy fear. By healthy fear, I mean that they feared what they should fear uh, appropriately, and they didn't fear what they irrationally shouldn't fear. Do you know what I mean? Do you see the sense? We didn't want them to have no fear because no fear is not wise. It's foolish to not be afraid of things you should have a sense of fear about, to not think about consequences. So we want that fear in that sense is more positive. It helps a person respond appropriately to a set of circumstances or a situation. Well, when you think about fear uh, as a Christian and you think about fear uh, in the scriptures, there's also this positive and negative sense. There is a sense, you can sometimes go, well, we don't want fear, we want to be people of faith. Well, no, there is an appropriate fear in the scriptures. In one sense, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom uh, we sing a, a pretty famous song don't we was twas grace that taught my heart to fear then grace my fears relieved the first right response to God is actually fear of the Lord why because he is so much greater and glorious and more powerful and sovereign and when you see that kind of authority there is a sense that fear is the first right uh, response now thankfully grace doesn't leave us in fear 
It leads us, leads us to know the grace and the mercy. But there's an appropriate fear there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But on the other hand, and in the Gospels especially, fear is seen more negatively. And in the Gospels especially, fear is often contrasted with faith. You either have faith or you have fear. And faith is always seen positively because it's always in Jesus in the Gospels. Fear is seen negatively. Well, our passage today contains this kind of comparison. It's got this contrast going through it. So I'm going to take us through the verses now, and I hope you'll look out for faith and fear uh, and the way they're portrayed by Matthew in this passage. So let's have a look at it, and then I've got two um, points that I'd like us to uh, think about this morning. So we begin in verse 22, and it tells us immediately, which means we should remember what's just happened. And the passage just before ours is the very well-known, very famous feeding of the 5,000. So our passage takes place immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. And what does Jesus do immediately after the feeding? He gets the disciples to go into a boat and to sail over to the other side of the, of the sea while he just stays around and dismisses this huge crowd. Now, I want you to notice that. It's very deliberate that Matthew writes this. Jesus tells the disciples to get into a boat and go over to the other side. And I want you to notice this for a very specific reason. Uh, the disciples are going to face a terrifying storm while they're in this boat. And often when we read through the scriptures, and especially when preachers preach on the storms uh, in the Gospels, what we do is we say, well, we all go through storms in life. And we kind of make an analogy. And I think it's fair enough to do that. Well, the disciples are going to get into this storm for what reason? Because they've just obeyed Jesus. Because they've just done exactly what he's asked them. And I want you to notice that because sometimes when Christians get into storms in our lives, when we face some of the serious struggles and difficulties that we go through, we sometimes think, well, I must be going through this because I've done something wrong. I must be going through this because there's some sin in my life that I haven't confessed properly or that hasn't been dealt with. And it becomes almost a double burden for Christians. It's the, the, the pressures and the difficulties of the storm itself. And then this feeling, I must have caused this. I must have done something to contribute to this uh, on top of that. And I want you to see here from the, these verses, that's not always what it is at all. Sometimes struggle and storms can follow on directly from obedience. These disciples were literally doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. And doing what Jesus told them to do brought them into this storm. It doesn't always follow, and I pray that, I don't know all your situations, but there may be some of you facing a storm right now, and there may be this double weight on you, and it might have nothing to do with it, because it doesn't always have any, something to do with it. Well, as the disciples head off, we find Jesus take time alone to pray. And I, and I don't have time to focus on it this morning, but it's such an important thing to do this. Taking time out of the busyness and noise of the world to pray. Turning screens off and sounds off. We don't get many periods in life where we do that anymore, but we should. And we need to. Jesus did this, I'm sure, not because he was uh, God the Son, but because he was human and he needed to spend time in prayer to his Father because it's so life-giving for us. 
Uh, Matthew draws attention to it twice in verse 23. We're told he goes up on a mountainside by himself. Then we're told as evening came, he was alone. He's taking time deliberately to be by himself, to spend time in prayer. It's a good thing to do. Well, verse 24 tells us that as Jesus is praying alone on the mountain, we then see the boat. The boat is a considerable distance from land, and it encounters this severe storm. Wind and waves ravaging. This is not a good situation. But then we're told in verse 25, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them. Now, fourth watch is not familiar language to most of us, but we need to understand it in order to understand properly what's going on here. Fourth watch of the night is really Roman language, Roman Empire language. Uh, The Romans, as you know, were experts in warfare, and they knew that if you were engaged in battle at a particular time, the soldiers couldn't sleep all the way through the night because enemies would come and attack. So they broke the night up into four watches, and at each watch, one group of the soldiers remained awake so that they could keep lookout and protect the rest of them that were sleeping. So there were four different watches, and the soldiers took shifts, sleeping and waking. So the first watch was what you and I would call 6 o'clock in the evening through to 9 o'clock at night. The second watch was 9 o'clock at night through to what we'd call midnight. The third watch was midnight through to 3 o'clock in the morning. And the fourth watch is what we would call 3 o'clock in the morning through to 6 o'clock in the morning. Now that's the one we're interested in, the fourth watch. 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, why am I bothering to tell you all this? Well, verse 24 described the boat in the storm in the evening. This storm had hit the, the boat and the disciples in the evening. Jesus comes to them in verse 25, not until probably 5 o'clock in the morning. In other words, these disciples have been struggling all night long to survive. In the dark, in the wet, in the cold, fighting for their life in pitch black in what must have been the most terrifying of situations. And I know that as I I talk about this this morning, some of you here will know just how long a night can be. The kind of night where you're not sure you'll see the dawn because the pressures that you're feeling, the situation that you're struggling with. This was the kind of night that these (coughs) disciples had had. But now as dawn is approaching as the the dark gets a little bit less dark and the light starts to make things more bearable. We're told Jesus walks out to them on the sea. And I want you to be very clear, that's what he does here. He walks out to them on the sea. He's literally walking on water. It's the same phrase that Matthew uses in verse 25 and verse 26 because the author Matthew doesn't want us to misunderstand what's going on here. This is not an hallucination. This is not, uh, I read in a commentary once, this was an optical illusion, and Jesus was actually walking on the shore, but it looked like he was walking on the water just because of the way the, the eye line was. I was in a church service once where I heard someone say that uh, Jesus was walking on a hidden sandbar. So it looked like he was walking on the water, but there was a sandbar just under the water, and that's what he was walking on. Some of these things, you need more faith to believe them than the, the actual miracle. No, he's walking on top of the water. That's what he's doing. It's a miracle that happens here. None of us can do that. Some of us might sink faster than others. I sink a lot faster now than I used to, but uh, none of us can do this. Now, when you know... 
It's a miracle that Jesus does here, but he's also doing something more significant and symbolic if you know the scriptures. In the Bible, the sea uh, has, is an image. What's the, what's the image or the symbol of the sea? In the Bible, the sea is often the image used of destructive forces in opposition to God. So in the Old Testament, the sea is where the Leviathan, the beast, dwelt. In the Old Testament, uh, the sea, the waters, is what God uses to decreate in the flood, which I spoke about last time I was here. It's the waters that are used. In fact, in the book of Revelation, in the New Testament, it says that in the new creation there will be no sea. This is the verse that upsets surfers and people that love swimming in the sea because they think, is there going to be no sea in the new creation? I don't think that's what it's saying. But the book of Revelation, if you know, it's full of symbolism. It's got lots of symbolism. I think what it's saying is there will be nothing in the new creation that is destructive. There will be nothing in the new creation uh, that is opposed to God's purposes because that's the symbol of the sea in the scriptures. Well, if that's the symbol of the sea, do you see the symbolism of Jesus walking on top of it? Nothing destructive, nothing against God's purposes matters to this person because of his authority and power. It's an incredible demonstration of power. And the disciples get it because they respond in a way which they should. Well, how do they respond? In fear. They're terrified, we're told. It's a ghost, they exclaim, and they cry out in fear. And I want to say, here is appropriate fear. Because when you see that kind of power, that kind of authority, that kind of strength over creation, it should cause alarm because we know how powerful nature is. So if someone's more powerful than nature, that is incredible. All of us will have been through times in our lives when we've experienced the power of nature. Uh, for us in Christchurch, earthquakes kind of showed that. If you see someone that's more powerful than nature, that's someone to fear because of that authority and power. And you see this in the scriptures, in the gospels in particular, quite often. There's another incident of Jesus calming a storm. You remember? This is the one where Jesus is in the boat with them and he's asleep and they're, they're scared in the boat, and they wake him up, and he says, peace be still, and suddenly the whole storm stops. And do you remember what the response of the disciples is? Who is this man? They're, who is this man? And they, it says they were terrified and asked, who is this man? And you think, well, I understand them being scared of the storm. Why are they terrified of the calm? Because of the power they've just seen. <clears throat> it's the same as in, in the um, Gospel of Luke. There's another incident where... Um, there's a lunatic. Do you remember this incident where there's a, a possessed man who screams? He runs around the tombs and he screams out violently and he breaks chains and he's uh, terrifying. And Jesus, he and he's naked. He runs around naked screaming and it sounds terrifying. Anyway, Jesus heals him and then uh, casts the demons into the pigs, if you remember. And at the end of that, Luke, look it up afterwards. In Luke's gospel, it says... The people came there and saw the man sitting down, fully clothed in his right mind, and they were terrified. <coughs> and you think, well, why is that terrifying? I'm looking out at a lot of people who are fully clothed in their right mind. It's not terrifying. It's terrifying when you know what he was and you know the power and authority of the person who could control that. That's right fear. 
Because when you've got that power and authority, that level of glory, that is something to fear. Except that's not all he's got. Because then Jesus says these wonderful words. Words spoken on this particular instance to the disciples during that what must have been an awful and lonely and scary, dreadful night. But words which I think should be remembered and held on to and uh, used by all Christians down through the ages. Because Jesus, as he walked towards them, said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And if you don't remember anything else that I say this morning, remember those words of Jesus, because they're the key words. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Because they're words that every Christian can hold on to at times in their life. They're words of comfort, of confidence, of conviction. They certainly seem to encourage Peter, because Peter immediately responds. And this is kind of why we love Peter, isn't it? He's just all in. And even though he mucks things up, I think all of us kind of like Peter. Um, and he's straight there, verse 28. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. <laughs> I mean, what, what a strange thing to say, but this is why I think it's hard not to love Peter. And Jesus says to him, come. And we're told in verse 30 that Peter himself gets down out of the boat and he starts walking on water as well. And he, we're told that he goes towards Jesus. This is brilliant by Peter. Now, it doesn't tell us how far he gets, but I've got a theory and I'll share it with you in a moment. But he's walking on water. And good on Peter. Uh, Jesus walking on water is recorded in three of the Gospels. But Peter walking on the water is only recorded here in Matthew. Uh, Mark and John don't record it. And so I'm so glad that Matthew preserved this for us so that we've got an account of it. Because it's great to see. But alas, it only lasts a little while. Because what happens? Peter suddenly becomes aware again of everything going on around him. The wind and the waves and the danger. And he becomes afraid. Fear again. And we're told he began to sink into the water. <coughs> Thankfully... He cries out a prayer, Lord save me. That's the best prayer you can ever pray. If you've ever wondered what I can, I don't know how to speak to God, I don't know what prayer to offer, here's a three-word prayer which is the best one you can ever, Lord save me. It's a great prayer to pray. That's what Peter prayed. And Jesus reaches out his hand. Now, here's my theory. Jesus reaches out his hand. So I think Peter got all the way to Jesus. Because it doesn't say that Jesus had to go and get him or anything like that. He just reaches out and takes Peter by the hand. He says to Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So we're supposed to see here fear that Peter had led to him doubting. Fear led to his faith wavering, diminishing. Then Jesus and Peter get into the boat and something else miraculous happens. The storm itself dies down immediately. And we then see the disciples respond to Jesus and what, what he's done. And we'll think about that in a few moments. So that's the passage. That's what Matthew tells us happened in chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. So I've got two quick points that I want to um, encourage us with this morning coming out of that passage. And the first is this. Fear is the enemy of faith. That's what we see here. Fear is the enemy of faith. I'm so glad Matthew included for us this account of Peter walking on the water because I think, as well as describing what happened, this is also a picture. What Peter goes through is kind of a picture of the life of every Christian. 
Because what, hap- what happens to Peter here? Well, he's met by Jesus, in this case literally by him walking on the water. That doesn't happen to most of us. But we're met by God uh, in Jesus in some way. Uh, and G- and uh, he says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And Peter then responds in faith. Not perfect faith, verse 18, if it's you, but faith nonetheless. And then Peter starts to walk by faith. But then the struggles of life get to him. Then his fear of the things in this world becomes stronger than his faith in Jesus. He takes his eyes off Jesus. Matthew says he sees the wind. I don't think you can see the wind, but I think the point that Matthew's making is he's taken his eyes off Jesus. And his faith starts to falter and he starts to sink. He starts to drown. But then in his moment of need, he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out, grabs him by the hand, holds on to him, and brings him safely through the storm. Do you see what I mean? This little interlude with Peter, I think, is a description of the life of faith that every Christian has. It's what we all go through. We have faith in the Lord Jesus, but then at different times, life gets on top of us. The things in this world cause us to take our eyes off Jesus and we get so consumed by what's going on around us that we start to doubt, we start to sink, we take our eyes off him. And I want to point out, Peter had every right to fear at one level. This was an experienced fisherman. He knew the dangers of the sea. He knew what it meant to be vulnerable in this particular area. But friends, he'd forgotten who was with him. He'd forgotten who his faith was in. You and I have a life in this world that contains things that it's right and appropriate that we fear at times. Things that will, in and of themselves, those fears pull us away from trusting Jesus. Problems that you and I go through. Losses that we experience. Addictions that we wrestle with. Failures that we've experienced, dangers that we face. I think one of the difficult things that COVID presented for was fear. It created fear, and we operate really badly in, in the sphere of fear. Sphere of fear is a terrible phrase. We can very easily, like Peter, become so aware of the wind and the waves around us that we take our eyes off Jesus, we start to doubt, we lose heart, and we can sink. Uh, I haven't tested this to see if it's true, but I've um, read that the most common command in the scriptures is do not be afraid, fear not. Over 300 times in the scriptures. Why? Because fear is the enemy of faith. We want to beware letting the storms of life get so on top of us that we fear and our faith falters and our eyes come off Jesus and we just look at the things around us. Maybe understandable, maybe realistic, maybe painful. But fear is the enemy of faith. So then, if the first point is fear is the enemy of faith, how do we sort out fear? Well, secondly, Jesus is the power of faith. Fear is the enemy of faith. Jesus, though, is the power of faith. There's one reason and one reason only why you and I and all Christians can have faith, not fear. Even in the face of very real storms and struggles, And that reason is because of whom our faith is placed in, because of the Lord Jesus. This incident shows how incredible, how awesome Jesus is. 
And you can see that by the response of the disciples. It's easy to miss this, but I didn't point this out when I went through the verses, but it's incredible what they do. Verse 33, what did they do after they'd seen Jesus walking on the water and calming the storm? Verse 33, they worshipped him and said, truly you are the son of God. Now, we kind of know that Jesus should be worshipped, and we know that he's the Son of God, and so that doesn't strike us as a strange response. But it's a very strange response in Matthew's Gospel. Because if you and I were reading through Matthew's Gospel from chapter 1, verse 1 through to this point, no one has worshipped him, and, and only two entities have known that he is the Son of God. Who are the two entities? If you're reading through from Matthew 1 through to 14, verse 22, who are the two entities who have recognized that Jesus is God's son? God the Father. That's the trick answer, but it's true. Because in the baptism, God the Father says, this is my son whom I love, in him I'm well pleased. Exactly right. So God knows it. But we kind of knew that God knew it. Who's the other one? It's, well, it's a demon-possessed woman. It's the demons. The demons know all the way through, surely you are the Holy One of God. They know who Jesus is. But no one else has known it the whole way through. This is the first time. Finally, for the, um, the first time, they understand that now, oh, you're the God, the Son. And so they worship him. Now think what that means. Up until chapter 14... They'd seen Jesus do incredible things. They'd seen him heal people in remarkable ways. They'd just seen him feed the 5,000. That's the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that's in all four Gospels. That's how important that miracle is. They'd seen him raise people from the dead, and yet they'd never worshipped him and said, surely this is the Son of God. So why do they do it here? Well, because of the incredible power and sovereignty that this showed. I said before, we, we miss it too easily, but in the Old Testament, the greatest leader of God's people at one level was Moses. And at one point in time, Moses did a miracle with water, if you remember. He had to do it by praying. He had to do it by raising his hand and the waters dividing. Now comes one who doesn't need to pray, who doesn't need to hold up his staff, who doesn't need to do anything. He just casually walks over the top of water. And for the person who's reading the Bible, you go, oh my goodness, this is someone different. This is someone that creation itself bows before. This is the one above all others. This is the one you want on your side. And for us, this is the one in whom our faith is placed. Isn't that incredible? This is who you and I have as the object of our faith. It's in him. This one. I don't know if you've ever had this, um, but I've had non-Christians who I know sometimes say to me, Jay, I, I wish I had your faith. And I know what they mean when they say that, but it's a flawed statement. It's a flawed statement because faith is empty in and of itself. Everyone's got faith. We demonstrate faith in lots of things every day. Faith is just you're not sure of something. You think it, but you're not sure. When you sit down in a chair, you're not sure if it'll hold your weight or not, but you, you know, some have shown more faith than others, but you, you don't know. When you get in a car, you don't, I don't know if all the mechanics are going to work, but I have faith that it's going to work. The important thing with faith is what's your faith in. That's the important part of faith. And our faith is in Jesus. 
Our faith is in the one who can walk over the top of water because he's the one creation bows before. Following Jesus in this world doesn't make life easy. It doesn't remove Christians from problems. You see that in these verses. I remind you again, the disciples faced the storm precisely because they followed Jesus obediently. But the life of a Christian is a life of ultimate confidence, ultimate assurance, ultimate certainty, because we know how it ends in in the end, because we know the one who's got the power to achieve that, because we know we have Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world, friends. I'm not sure... I feel like the world's a pretty dark place at the moment. You may think I'm overly pessimistic, but that's how I feel. I'm not sure how people live life in this world without knowing him. Because knowing him makes the difference. It's the only thing that makes the difference. And if you know him, nothing in this world that we can fear, and sometimes should fear, but none of those things can thwart Jesus. Not the problems that I spoke of before, or the losses, or the addictions, or the weaknesses. Not death, or loss, nor failure, or any other dangers. Because Jesus is greater than all of them. And that's who you and I have the privilege of trusting. I was talking to my wife about this. um, Because I do think fear has changed in the world recently. And uh, we were talking about one of our children. So uh, when I went through school, I don't think there was anything that I feared in my whole school career. It wasn't really a career, but it's overstating it. But maybe a couple of kids who were bullies or something like that, but there was nothing really that I feared. Well, we've got a middle daughter who's just turned 21, and in her um, 14 years at school, she's had a very different life. She was, um, she was in a public swimming pool when the earthquakes hit, and she's the one person in our family you still can't talk to about that experience because she can't, she clams up, she'll start crying, she'll leave, she can't think about it. Uh, A few years after that, she spent four hours locked in a classroom under a desk, told that they couldn't talk or or do anything because there was a gunman running around in Christchurch killing 51 people. Uh, And and the second place where it happened was less than a kilometre from the girls' school, so it all got shut down. And then a couple of years after that, the whole world shut down because of COVID. I, I can't look my daughter Molly in the eyes and say there's nothing to fear in this world. She knows there is. But the wonderful thing, the wonderful privilege is Molly knows Jesus. And she knows there's something greater than the, the things to fear in this world. And she knows she has a saviour uh, and a king that's greater than the things in this world. And so when you and I are face to face with those things, when we're feeling the wind and the waves like Peter, maybe shattered after a whole night battling, one of those nights, but for some of us, we may have been struggling with things for years. It's not just a night. It's been something causing us debilitating pain or difficulty or sadness for years. When we're doing that, I'd encourage us to remember these words. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Because that's the truth. That's who's with you. That's who you and I can cry out to. That's who grasps us by the hand and will hold on to us through anything. Jesus, the power of faith. And I encourage you as I encourage myself, cry out to him at those moments when you need to. Lord, save me.
and know that it'll hold on to you and ultimately bring you home. Peter may have taken his eyes off Jesus, but the key thing is Jesus never took his eyes off Peter. That's the key thing. There will never be an experience in your life when you're alone or where he won't be with you or or be sovereign in the whole thing. We may not always understand it, but we understand him and we can trust him. Faith, not fear. Jesus is the power of faith. And so I encourage you, as I finish, to um, it, it might be that some of us need to reorient ourselves because I think sometimes we can have periods of life where fear becomes the norm and it can cause our faith to falter, can cause a weakness in our spirit and uh, can bring doubts and sinking and those sorts of things. And if that's you and you know it's you even as I'm saying, well, just for a moment, cast your eyes back upon Jesus. Remember who your saviour and king is and let that encourage you and strengthen you. Your fears may be well placed. The struggles might be real, but Jesus is more. He's greater and you can trust him ultimately. Fear may be the enemy of faith, but Jesus is the power of faith. Keep your eyes on him. Even more importantly than that, know he has his eyes on you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your Son, our King, the one in whom our faith is placed. And I pray that for any of us this morning who may be particularly facing fear at the moment, and I pray that we might know the comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ as King, that we might again know that, uh, set our eyes upon him so that we can be reminded of his glory, his greatness, his grace, and his love, and understand that there's no better place to be than in his hands. I pray that you'd strengthen us in that. In his precious name. Amen.